Warrior Podcast with Promise Elon. Welcome to the Way of the Growth Warrior Podcast, Patrick. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad we could finally connect and, and talk all about fun things, growth and individuals and all that kind of fun stuff. Nice. Well, um, I'm so honored to have you here. The first time I heard about Profit Well was about two and a half years ago. So I spent, as you may know, most of my career as a venture-backed CEO and for a couple of years as a chief revenue officer. And I had this idea for a product, which eventually you built, which was the, the first product to really bring together what I call the hourglass, looking at the entire business from an economic standpoint, and then really drilling in on the key metrics and the key unit economics. In July of 2018, I sold the last company that I was running and was CEO of to a public company. And then decided from there, after a lot of travel and some self-reflection, that I would do the two things I love most. One is buying, building, and investing in companies, and doing so not as an operator. <laughs> and secondly, <laughs> secondly is mentoring. And so I've chosen to mentor uh, through the Growth Warrior. I wrote a book, which um, I'll talk about in a second. I have uh, courses, and then I do masterminding and board seats to help what I call underdog entrepreneurs uh, get to where they want to go. And you can't see me because you're, you're dialing in via phone, but I'm an African-American non-technical woman in Silicon Valley. So part of what I've focused on are people who are growing businesses from half a million to 5 million and 5 million to 50, really based on being non-traditional entrepreneurs. So what I'd love to do mm. is um, learn more about you I've heard your story out of, you know, cashing in your 401k out of Google. Talk more about what drove you to become an entrepreneur and move from working for a big company to working for yourself. It probably really comes down to like hubris and um, pure ignorance, um, which I think is, uh, you know, it, it, it is not uncommon. But when I was growing up, I, it wasn't like I wanted to be in business or wanted to be an entrepreneur. I have you know, plenty of fun stories of you know, lemonade stands or like things like that, but um, nothing, not one of those things where I like looked up to business. I actually come from a, a strong labor union family. And so it was one of those things that, you know, people who started the businesses, they were, they were bad people, right? You know, at least that's, uh, you know, when I was really young, my interpretation when I was like eight years old for my dad, he was always, you know, complaining about management and things like that. And so um, yeah. I, you know, I come from a, a you know, relatively poor family and, and, you know, super blue collar, all that kind of fun stuff. I you know, did the classic like, oh, you know, you should go be a doctor, you should go be a lawyer. And so right. I kind of followed that path and ended up working for the government um, because I just discovered I don't really like blood. <laughs> and also that there's lots of lawyers out there and there's not yes. enough real actual jobs for all those lawyers. And so ended up, uh, you know, jumping in and working for the government for a little while. And it was one of those things where, you know, that's where I kind of discovered that like this whole, you know, world of bureaucracy and, and kind of really slow, slow movement really wasn't for me. Um, and I didn't know it at that at that time. I just knew that I had a really fulfilling job, but um, it was moving really slowly. And so I thought tech was going to be the answer. Uh, so I moved to Boston to work at Google. And it was one of those things where I thought, oh, you know, Google, this will be a tech company. This will move really, really quick. Well, it's a 30,000 person company when I was there. So, you know, 30,000 person company doesn't move that quickly. And, you know, this is where the hubris you know, continues to come in and kind of the ignorance of, oh, well, you know, if I'm going to bust my butt, if I'm going to work this hard, like, why don't I do it for myself? Right. And, you know, I didn't, didn't know anything about startups. I had very little knowledge about, you know, cap tables and options and all these other fun things. And, um, you know, thankfully, I started getting involved with Twitter and there was a kind of a really 
I guess the best way to put it is like a loud entrepreneur here in Boston who, you know, was, was tweeting about hiring and these kinds of things. And I was like, oh, it, like, it probably seems like a good idea to go work, you know, at, at a company like that. Right. And so I remember, you know, going through the interview process and all that kind of fun stuff. And um, I actually had to, you know, ask a, a, another Twitter friend for advice on like, hey, can you explain to me like how I should look at options and these types of things and, and went and worked there. And I think that was a you know, the smartest decision, like I never really made because I didn't know I was making the smart decision at the time because, yeah. you know, if I would have started a company right out of Google, I would have probably failed. And so long story short, I went and worked at that company and I still had that hubris. I still had that, oh, I want to do, I want to do it on my own. I want to do it on my own. And so I had the realization that I was in a position in my life where I was essentially maybe not the poorest I've ever been, but like, you know, I had the most value leverage, if that makes sense. Meaning, you know, I was, I was on the upswing in terms of like, I could go work at Google again. I could go work at a nice high paying job, but I could always go back to that. I had the, you know, the, the blessing or the privilege at that point to have an education and not have a ton of debt and not have any, you know, kind of big liabilities, like, you know, a family or anything like that. And so from a revenue or expenses perspective, obviously family brings other things, but they also bring, you know, cost and cost, risk. Yes. And so, yeah. And so basically um, I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to do it, do it. And might as well do it now. And this was in kind of my mid twenties. And so cashed in that very small 401k, I think it was, you know, after taxes, I think it was like 10 grand basically. Um, and that was going to be my, my expenses for the next as many months as I could basically. And, you know, started bootstrapping. Um, and it was, uh, it was kind of all, all, all going went from there basically. I love this. And I could, there are like 50 questions I could ask you. It's, it's funny. I think about that four hundred k which after fees and taxes uh, was 10 grand. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. One of the things that, um, so last year, uh, my team did some research and I love your story. Uh, my team did some research and, and found a couple of things I want you to react to. So first of all, it, it looks at, um, we looked at what the profile of entrepreneurs are. And what we found, Patrick, was that, you know, Gen Z and millennials, you know, at, at a rate of up to 94% self-identify as entrepreneurs. And so, you know, and many of them go directly from college or not college at all into, um, into building companies. And so one of the questions I, I want to get you to, to, to process on with me here is like, if you were advising someone, what would you tell them? So that's one question. Here's the second one. And this is a big one. Um, you know, I grew up, my mom was single. I'm raising three kids and there, there were no trust funds, Patrick. So I couldn't say, hey, I've got this great yeah. idea. <laughs> Can you give me 10 grand? You know, I had a ton of college loans when I started out of, at, you know, out of, out of grad school. And I had um, effectively like very little money. Um, and I had just what I could yeah. create. So I guess two questions for you is one is, you know, if you look back on that experience, did you feel like an underdog, you know, starting that? And what were some of the emotions around it? And then secondly, if you were advising someone who wanted to be an entrepreneur, what would you tell them to do before they get started? You know, on the, on the underdog side, like I, I think I definitely did because I, I think the thing is, is it's all very relative, right? Because, you know, when you think about, you know, like maybe I start with some of the advice, like I, I don't think everyone should go and be an entrepreneur right away. I actually think it's a really problematic thing to do because as you know, you know, being an entrepreneur and, and I've learned, you know, the hard way mostly is that a lot of it comes down to like knowing yourself um, and, and, you know, kind of getting rid of some of those demons or those, you know, bad habits or those things, or at least recognizing them so that you can kind of offset them with, with other people who work with you. And I think that you're a kid, you know, being like, you know, in high school or college or something like that, it's, it's really hard to get that 
right? Unless you've had certain circumstances that have forced you to face those things. My best piece of advice is go get a job, right? And get a job at the right place, right? And, and not all of us have the, you know, the, that type of opportunity. And it's a rather flippant thing that I can say, but I think the big thing you got to think about is, hey, you know, what, where can I learn the most? And if you want to start a company, this is why I was so blessed to, to go work at that smaller startup before I started my own company was because, you know, one, I had the context of like, oh, like this is what it looks like when you don't have the resources of Google or the U.S. government, right? And you can't necessarily have all the smartest people in the world selling ads. You know, you, know, you have to have, you know, you have to kind of pick things out and you have to deal with building a culture from nothing, right? And, and I don't know if I really realized those lessons at the time, but I think that the best piece of advice is like, go learn on someone else's dime, right? right. And go get, you know, I, I the, the worst mistake I ever made um, from a business perspective is I was offered this uh, chief of staff role and I was basically, hey, you're going to be in the board meetings, taking notes, you're going to be doing all these things, but you're also going to be managing the CEO's calendar. And I was like too arrogant. I had too big of an ego where I was like, oh, I don't know. That doesn't seem right. Right. And I'm like this 24, 25 year old kid who like, you know, that like couldn't even, yeah, couldn't even see like the forest for the trees here of like, yeah, you got to deal with like a calendar, but that's easy. You do that already. Like, you got to do all this other stuff. You get to do all this other stuff, right? And so I, I think like if you can find like a chief of staff role, if you can find like, hey, you want to be a product person, you want to be an engineering person, you want to you know, be a big marketing type CEO, you want to just be a CEO in general, like get as close to the action as you can in, in a way that's like safer, right? Where you can kind of get your loans underneath you if you have student debt. Um, you can kind of get like, you know, and find someone who's going to invest in you and like clearing your emotional baggage. Because I think that's the other big thing is like, you know, there's plenty of people, like everyone's got some emotional baggage, and there's plenty of people who have like none in a, not a, um, it's not that they don't have it, but it doesn't really affect them. But I think like finding someone who like really is invested in trying to make you a leader. Um, and it's hard to do that when you're trying to build a company because, you know, there's just so many things going on. So that's my biggest advice. And I think, you know, on the flip side, you know, the other, the other question you asked, which is, now I'm kind of forgetting it. That's huge advice. Let me, let me pause other? for a second. Let me pause for a second. You, sure. again, are unpacking so many interesting concepts because you talk about, like, I, re- I remember this, Patrick. I remember getting out of grad school and I'd been an intern at a company yeah. called BEA Systems, which built the best, you know, app dev platform. And I had this incredible, she wasn't even a mentor, Patrick. I call her a champion because she gave me a job that I wasn't deserving of. (laughs) So, right. And then I go work at this company and two things happen that I, I, I want you to opine on. So one is she helps me like kind of work out my own kinks, right? Like, Hey, you know, you shouldn't say that in a meeting. You shouldn't schedule a meeting and invite the CEO. It's kind of, you know, we're, we're, you know, doing a billion dollars yeah. in revenue. Like, why are you? What she also did was she gave me access to the boardroom. And I remember um, really explicitly her saying, You can come to this board meeting, but sit in the back and don't say anything. And so I, mm. I did some manipulative things. I got in the room, and then I remember looking around, it was like Warburg Pincus, all these incredible big venture capital firms, and we were yeah. public. And I remember just sitting back there and like in fright taking notes for her. And so I went to that meeting and I took notes and I was quiet. And then I called my mom and I said, I'm in this meeting with all these big wigs in my early 20s, 22, 23, kind of similar to you. And my mother said, just touch the table, like get as close as possible to the table in that board meeting and just touch it. And so everyone takes a break. <laughs> the CEO of the company, you know, pushes his chair out 
and I go to the restroom and Patrick, I reorganize all the chairs so I could slide mine in. And I remember everyone got back from the, from the <laughs> bio break and I was sitting at the table and then everyone was just like, well, whatever. And so it moved on, but I got the skill of one, just hearing what a hundred million dollar financing sounds like or hearing what, you know, buying four or five companies in a, in, a, in a quarter looks like. But I also got some skills that, you know, I think set me up to be an entrepreneur. If you go back to that experience where you're working for the government and you're working for Google, when did it click? Like, when did you figure out that I know something, I can do something that would be marketable to the world? Like, when did that happen? And, and what did it feel like? That's a really introspective good question so i want to kind of think as quickly as i can on it but take your time I think that, <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know if there was yeah so it's a really good one i i don't know if there was like a moment exactly i think there's there's probably you know was and i'll come up with it unfortunately after we're done talking but i think there was, there, there's a there was kind of like a slow slow burn for me because I, i'm a you know, I, I, I am, but I was a lot worse in terms of like my own insecurity of just, you know, cause I, I you know, what works for the government and like, you know, I'm working as, as basically the entry level intel, you know, some the intelligence community and I'm working with like geniuses, like actual geniuses, you know, in terms of math, um, engineering and these types of things. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're just like, holy cow, I'm just like thankful to be in the room. Right. Um, and you know, I, I, it took me a while to learn that I was smart as well. Because um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of rude to like, you know, even think that, right? And I know there's some people that have no problem doing that. But like, for me, it was, well, I know I'm smart. I was always in, you know, all the fun classes, you know, I did really, really well in school from an academic perspective. But it was one of those things where it was like, you know, realizing the applicability of that intelligence is, is you know, something they had to kind of come to terms with. And I was at Google, you know, I was working with, everyone was from Ivy League, Harvard, et cetera. And I was this, you know, kid from, you know, liberal arts school in the middle of the country, right? And so... It, it took me a long time to kind of get to, I guess, that confidence in myself. And I think that what really helped me was, you know, having a little bit of stubbornness in terms of like, hey, like work is something that I love, right? Like work is part of my identity. Um, it's a huge part of my identity. It's it's one of the, the top things in my identity. And I think that that helped me a lot because when I had this insecurity, it was just like, well, it's fine. Go work harder right? Hey, go work, go work and figure stuff out. And it allowed me to get these cool opportunities where I would work on things. And, and I think, I guess one of the first moments, you know, now I kind of rambled through that a little bit, that actually was a crystallized moment was I, I built this, it's essentially this, this lead scoring algorithm when I was at Google. So I was on, on a sales desk basically. And I had, you know, essentially my background in econometrics and math. Yeah. And I was, you know, learning, learning to kind of code from an applicable standpoint. And I built this, you know, basically this model that would score my book of business and then basically give, you know, almost lead scoring or almost prioritization to who I should reach out to in what particular way. Right. And what was kind of scary about it was that, so I used it and all of a sudden, like, you know, I hit, you know, I think it was like 170 or 180% of my quota or something in a quarter. And it was like, you know, it was, it was, I was given the, the crappy pod, um, you had to put it, to put it bluntly. And so it was one of those things where I started rolling that out across different pods, right. I rolled it out for, you know, and there's a lot of different, you know, teams on the team that I was on or the organization I was in. So I started rolling it out and these folks started doing better and better. And it was one of those kind of cool things where, you know, the PhDs at Google, they're the ones who normally do this type of stuff. They do it very, very like top down. And I was doing like a kind of a bottom up approach. And so, you know, I was, I was presumably, you know, and we didn't, I didn't stay long enough to really do a full test, but I was presumably doing better. And so, you know, made Google a ton of money and all that kind of fun stuff. But 
I was sitting there and I was like, oh, I want to work on this full time. And they were like, yeah, no, you have to be here like two years before you can switch jobs. And I was like, okay, well, can I do this at night? And then can I get some engineering resources? And they're like, ah, no, like there's all these other projects and blah, blah, blah. Cause like, you know, I'm basically an entry level kid. Right. And right, so right. I think that was the moment where I was like, again, like if I'm going to bust my butt, you know, I might as well do this on my own. Right. Like I might as well try. Right. And, and there's, there's some, some truth in that statement. There's a lot of hubris in that statement. Right. Cause there's a lot of things I just didn't know at the time, but it was, it was that, Hey, it works my identity. If someone's trying to take my identity away from me. Like I'm going to do something to, to, to take it back. If that makes sense. I think, I think there's some, some stuff here and, and what's cool about it is, um, and, and I, I want to talk and I didn't start us off by talking about profit well, because I feel like that tends to be how everyone starts these podcasts. And so I wanted to get, talk about you first, yeah. but what, what I, what I feel based on what I heard you say, and I'm just going to process it out loud here is I feel that there are three things that I, I have noticed about you just in our interactions and then what I've observed and stalked you online, and I think you just reinforce all three, Patrick. So one is, I believe like most entrepreneurs, you don't believe in authority, and there's a little bit of a, a rebel uh, in you. And second, the underdog spirit, even if you're not one, allows you to take the alternative route to get to where other people have tried. But the thing that I find mm. fascinating about you and about your company and about how Price Intelligently became became profit well and how these two things feed each other. Tell me if this kind of resonates is I feel like you're one of those people who solves a problem and your immediate instinct is not to hoard it, but you want to give it as contribution to other people. And the way that you guys released all your new apps and released your new modules, like the retention app, you did that for free. I I believe if I remember correctly and you did it in a service of others' mindset. Do you, so do you feel like part of what has made you successful is that selflessness and that desire to be in service of others? I mean, is that, could that be part of the Patrick Campbell's secret sauce? Yeah, yeah that's funny way to put it. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think it's one of those things where, you know, it, it, it's tough because, you know, this sounds like humble, Greggy, but it, 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 it's, it's more of an instinct and just kind of like a natural thing rather than, you know, maybe like a very conscious effort. So what I mean by that is, you know, I, I'm a big believer in this whole concept of servant leadership where um, I, I learned really early on, I looked at, there's a company that was kind of failing that I was observing as I was um, working at um, this, this company called Jimbara. And so it was another company that was kind of, you know, pseudo hot at the time in Boston and they were doing really, really poorly. And I just kind of looked at like, you know, the management style. And I'd already kind of internalized this because I studied kind of servant leadership back in the day. And I was part of you know, several teams in, in college and as well as in high school. And it was one of those things where, you know, I learned that the, the most effective leaders are the ones who, you know, it's, it, it's not a top-down approach. And there are moments of, let's say, micromanagement, although that doesn't sound positive. There's, there are moments where you have to jump in and just like do or just help, right? But there's a lot of moments of like making sure you're setting those people up because, you know, you, at the end of the day, there's no one person who's going to make something successful, right? And so I think that is part of the MO. Um, it's part of, you know, how I, how I work. From an outside perspective, I think it's one of those things where, you know, I'm a big believer in like getting value when I give value, right? And I don't know if you've ever had this argument when you were like, you know, we're all punk teenagers at one point, right? And so when I was a punk, when I was a punk teenager, it was very, um, you know, well, I, I, I'm not going to give respect until I get respect, right? You know, if you've heard that or if you've had kids, you've probably encountered that. And I think it's one of those things where it's like, you start to learn and you're just like, why is that even a battle? 
like just give the value and then you'll get the value back at some point. Right. And I'm not like necessarily like a big, like karma person or anything like that, but it's just like, Hey, like if I'm known to be helpful when I need help, like it's just naturally going to come to me. Right. And so that was a big thing. I was like, and, and, and thankfully we started, you know, writing content and started doing really, really well. And so we kind of, you know, we started, you know, really providing value. And then when we needed to ask a favor, we'd get help or just naturally people would be like, Hey, I think you're doing some really cool stuff. You should talk to so-and-so um, or like, Hey, so-and-so said they need help with this. You know, I want to intro them. So maybe they can be a customer. Right. But I think it, it was kind of like one of those things where, you know, that cycle of, you know, you can, you can give the respect, you can give that value and then you'll get it back and, and kind of put yourself out there a little bit. It helps you kind of serve the market just like you're serving your team. Um, and then ultimately you're, you're looked at as, you know, someone who can be effective because you're bringing those folks together. And I think that there's, there's times where, there's major trade-offs with that mindset. I mean, totally. You know, we're, we're spending a lot of time and money on a free product, our metrics product. It's used by a ton of people and, you know, it's, it's a data product. So there's a lot of cost in terms of, you know, making sure that our database stays up and, you know, it's better than the paid competition and all that kind of fun stuff. But I think it's one of those things where, again, it's, it's playing that long game and to play the long game, it's totally fine to give that value up front to get folks to, to kind of circle back to you. It's interesting you say that and, and, uh, you probably, Patrick, have, have read the book, um, or if you haven't, I would suggest it called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And, and he talks about exactly yep. this. Have you read it? I haven't read the whole thing, but I have, I've, I've started it. It's one of those that kind of like is always perennially on my Kindle that I haven't quite finished yet for some reason. <laughs> okay, I'm going to call you. It's a great book, but it, it's exactly what you just talked about, which is this whole idea behind thinking about that long-term and, and, and doing our best to create win-win-wins, right? It, and it's the idea that like, yeah. if this idea gets into the world and it impacts a billion people, that's actually great for the world, right? And as a result, my tide will, will, will raise. And so I, I totally get yeah. that. It's interesting. I also hear in you, and, and again, I'm always looking to distill and to kind of codify, I think there's a growth mindset here, right? Which is in ourselves, right? So th- the book that I wrote, I kind of go through, can I walk you through the skills and I'd be curious to get your reaction to them? Yeah, totally. Okay. And we may have sent you a copy, but I sort of looked at my own experience and experience of others, incredible entrepreneurs through, you know, interviews and podcasts and surveys and just a lot of reading and research. And I found that there were like these seven, like non-negotiable skills that all successful entrepreneurs had. And the reason why I, I sort of codified it was I felt like a lot of people were unclear how to be an entrepreneur because it is kind of amorphous, right? Like, how do you do this? And so the first one, which you talked about, which is, you know, self-mastery. So being able to manage your emotions, know yourself, create habits that work and that reinforce the things that make you better and also to be happy. And the second is being able to tell your story in a way that is not like, I worked here, I worked here, but being able to tell a story that connects people to your past, but also allows them to see their future in you. Um, The third is, and you do this incredibly well, is build anti-fragile relationships. And so the idea there is, you know, relationships where they grow through stress and they grow through challenge versus ones that break and fold underneath any kind of weight. Um, fourth is that it's important to start with your leadership philosophy because the only way that you can build great teams is to first know how you lead. Fifth, and this is the one I'm, I've been so excited to talk to you about, is know your customer, love thy customer. Know your market, love thy customer. Mm. And, and looking at the customer and you know, the economics in a different way, and I want to get your thoughts on that in a second here, 
Um, six is built to exit. And so the idea is that you run your company, not that you're going to sell, but with the eventuality that that's going to, ha- that that might happen. Now, I've heard you talk about, you know, the, the future of being bought. I remember um, reading something where you said you were going to migrate more of your services revenue to SaaS because the possibility of, of being acquired at some point. And then the last one, and this is the one that I, I think we're going to have a heated conversation about is I believe that the act of raising money, Patrick, I believe makes a company better, even if you don't raise money. But just the act mm. of seeking to get outside investors makes that company better. So without going backwards, tell me what you think about that. Because you've, you've built this, what, $20 million company bootstrapped in a land of like of, of goodies and, and, <laughs> and venture capital. Why did okay. you decide not to raise money? And, and what do you think, how has that affected your business? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't necessarily have like a very volatile because there's a lot of people who are very anti VC and things like that. Right. And I think for me, you know, those conversations of like, you know, screw VCs versus you have to raise money. They always kind of revolve, revolve to, Hey, you know, it's a tool. And for some businesses, it's absolutely necessary. And some businesses it might not be, but still useful. And for other businesses, you know, it's a very conscious choice. Right. And I think for us, I know that for our situation and very individual, so going from very high level to low level, like if we had raised a lot of money early on, we probably would have failed. And I don't think it had anything to do with the money. I think what would happen is we would have gone really, really quickly into a brick wall. um, And we would be going so quickly that we wouldn't be able to take that time to kind of adjust. Um, And I think that's just the nature of, you know, just the nature of like, you know, free flowing cash. Um, the nature of the nature of essentially like the density that's happened within that market. And then ultimately, you know, us just not being ready. Right. And I think this is a, kind of an interesting concept when I think about, you know, your multiple different points here. It's one of those things where the successful nature of being an entrepreneur is like really like the clarifying point there. It's one of those things where as you move forward in that journey, you kind of have a choice to consciously become you know, successful or not by doing the things that you said, right? And I think that a lot of times, like, it's okay not to have all of those boxes checked and to kind of grow into that success. That's and right. I think what you say, like, the act of raising money, like, I, I almost completely agree with you, right? Like, I'd have to know a little bit of the details, but I think the reason that the act of raising money is helpful is because you get a really, really good feedback cycle, right? Yes. Because all of a sudden you're like trying to raise cash and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, you know, here's this feedback cycle. This sucks. This is good. This is whatever. And then that allows you to basically like push things forward, you know, and, and, and really kind of challenge your ideas and challenge yourself, right? Yeah. And if you don't raise the cash, I think it's fine too. But it's just one of those things where I think that the biggest thing to kind of keep in mind is like to push you know, to push, push yourself to kind of always be evolving. And I think, you know, raising cash or going through the act of raising cash is, is what kind of, kind of can help there. You've been quoted. I love that. And you've been quoted, you said somewhere, venture capital companies have a lot of churn. <laughs> it was like a very, very yeah. quote. I guess I'd be interested. You said that, you know, you think you guys would have failed if you had venture capital. Is that because you would have been so forced to just acquire any customer? So talk about like what, what in your mind says that this, this would not have been a successful business if you had more capital? Like what makes you think that? What are some of the other underpins? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a first time founder, right? And so I think if you gave me even a seed round, you know, the, the, 
the the common knowledge and it's it's a very much more nuanced but you know if, if you don't have time to understand the nuance it's okay the money is there to be spent right it's fuel and it's, you're supposed to use it to go faster right and so if you're a brand new entrepreneur you don't necessarily have like the restraints or the control to understand that yes it makes you go faster but it doesn't mean you necessarily go fast um you know you might take you know i love you know the story of like drift and david cancel um, you know, we hang out quite often in Boston and, and, you right. know, when he was basically in the first like two years of building drift, like it wasn't public, there was nothing out there. Like there was no, there was no like website where they were, they were learning. Right. And they had raised, you know, I think 20, 30 million. That's the advantage of being David Cancel and, you know, being successful is <laughs> like, you can do that. But it's one of those things where he had the constraint and his team had the constraint to kind of figure out what made the most sense. Right. And so it, it's, it's one of those things where I think for me, I would have been like, oh, we have to spend this money. We have to go quicker. And so I don't think that we, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you like what we would do, but we probably would have like, you know, been like, oh, this is the direction of the product. This is the direction of the company. And then basically like just gone really, really quick and not like slowly enough. And we were moving quickly even then, but still like we, we needed to go slow enough to realize oh, this part of the product sucks. This part of the experience sucks. We need to kind of rethink this. We need to rethink that and kind of move things forward. And so I think that, you know, if I raised money now and was starting a brand new company, I think that I would set the expectations with those investors of like, hey, like this is fuel. And what we're going to do is in the first two years or maybe one year, hopefully, but sometimes it takes two, we're really going to figure out what is that product? What is that product market fit? Where are we going to be going? It's going to be a lot of research. It could be a lot of testing. It's going to be a lot of losing. And then we're going to go for broke. And basically, once we understand those things, just spend as much money as we can, right? Because then all of a sudden, it's just for growth. I think our industry also, like, it's not that money you know, doesn't help, but we have kind of an awareness with a lot of our, our products. And so it's one of those things that there's only so much you can do when it comes to branding and those types of things with cash. And so I think, I think there's just nuance in, in what we are building when it comes to you know, cash and things like that. I think that's powerful. And the idea of early on having those shackles and constraints, it's really useful because you, you get to be scrappy, right? You get to do the things manually that at some point you can automate. I mean, you've heard um, the guys from Airbnb talk about that, right? Which is really, really know your customer. It, it's actually interesting because it kind of brings me back. In 2013, 2014, I was chief revenue officer of a company that has started out as a bootstrapped um, HR tool. And this is when I got really familiar and understood with like the details of unit economics. This is why you were building profit well, of just understanding lifetime value, customer acquisition costs, you know, fully loaded versus not, churn, how you measure that, cost of retention, cost to like all those things was really because we, we were a very low cost acquisition engine for a product that cost $99 a month. And you get really creative when you got to acquire a customer for seven dollars, <laughs> you know, like you really yeah. nail that down so you can get that, you know, uh, ten to twelve x uh, LTV to CAC ratio. I guess one of the things that you mentioned, you mentioned product market fit. So not to manipulate this, but do you ever look at product market fit for a company in terms of its unit economics? Like if you were advising a company to look at profit well, look into your system to know when they've hit that inflection point. Would it be you know, economic based or would it be some other kind of tertiary or, or qualitative lever? Yeah, that's a really good question because there's a bunch of measures of, of product market fit and there's a bunch of people who are now like, no, it's market product fit. So there's a lot of semantics around this. But I think that you know, some of the measures are, you know, there's the Sean Ellis, Heaton Shaw model yes. of you know, asking your users, you know, say, 
oh, excuse me, my, my afternoon lull is coming in. Sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, just, you know, asking the questions of like, hey, you know, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use, you know, product, whatever the product is. From a quantitative perspective, I think it's, it's the product market fit side. I don't know, and this is, might be just splitting hairs. Like I care less about, you know, it's more of like scaling growth. Um, if, if you're latching onto something that's growing, you know, consistently month after month with, you know, little to minimal effort, you know, you're, you're starting to hit onto that whole concept of, you know, product market fit. And I think that's, that's one of those things that's, you know, super, super powerful um, to kind of push things forward. And you're thinking about like, you know, trying to quantify some of these more nebulous concepts. I think it all comes back to those fundamentals. It all comes back to those, you know, unit economics and those types of things and making sure that you're kind of scaling those. Now, to be, you know, a, a, a truly scaling company, like you have to be going from, you know, one to 10, 10 to 100, 100 and, you know, right. to, to the stratosphere, right? And I think that it's okay not to be one of those companies. I think sometimes people, and this is continue to be an of know thyself, like, you know, building a $10 million company and just kind of sitting on it, it's not a bad idea, right? <laughs> you know, it's not one of those things where, you know, it's, it, it's a little bit of a new corner store. And if you're a SaaS company, the margins are typically really, really good, right? And so I think that's a really big thing too, is like knowing thyself because, you know, if, if you're trying to build that company and you're trying to be aggressive, like you're probably going to raise money at some point, you know, we're probably going to raise money at some point. And so right. it's one of those things where, you know, depending on what you're looking for and depending on, you know, what, what's acceptable to you and what's great is, is really what pushes a lot of these pieces. But those factors, I mean, it's interesting because I've heard you, you've been very consistent, which is beautiful. I've heard you talk about being open to acquiring and being acquired, right? So you're open to both of the sides of the M&A coin here. You also talk about being open to capitalization. I imagine in your mind, you have a, you have a point at which you'd be open to doing that. But if you were mentoring someone and they were, they were making that decision, right? Because, you know, seed capital, capital, Patrick, is in the streets everywhere. You're in Boston. You're like swimming. Yeah, it's, like, all, it's everywhere. All over the place. Yeah. So that is very intoxicating, especially for someone who thinks they need it and who doesn't have access to it, if that makes any sense, right? Like the person who, yeah. right, who's in, you know, Dallas and who has a great idea and who, you know, has like, I've built econometrics before and thinks I could build a company out of this, but I've got to go raise capital. How does one get to a place as you have where you basically set your North Star on? what kind of company you're going to build and who you'll let sit at the table with you. Cause I imagine that's part of it for you, right? Is you don't want to let anyone and you've built this beautiful thing. So how would you advise someone who has a great idea? How would you advise them to build that North star and think about funding, but think about it in terms of who is going to be with me on this journey? These are hard end of day questions, brother. I got to apologize. <laughs> yeah. I think it, I mean, it's a tough question on a number of levels, right? But I think one of the things to kind of think about is that North Star starts with what you want, right? And, and I kind of already alluded to that, but it really starts with what you want. Like if you want to make, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year, you don't want a lot of, like, you want some responsibility, but you have, you know, you want a responsibility where technically you go home and you don't really have to worry about it anymore. It's a very, very different job than, hey, I want something that is my vocation. I want something that is like my passion, right? Versus, hey, I want to build something that's my passion that's, you know, built to flip, you know, or built to, you know, sustain the test of time. 
or be, you know, one of the greatest X companies of, you know, our time, right? So you kind of have to figure out like what you want to build. Like when I started, I was like, yeah, I want to make money, right? I want to make money. I was like, if I'm going to bust my butt, I want to get paid, right? And then all of a sudden I started realizing like, when I reach a certain like level, like, and I, you know, I was, I was making zero for a long time. And then I was always sacrificing like myself. I was making 30 grand a year for a long time. Like, 60 wow. like I was, I was again, very blessed that like, I think, think, think the Lord went to a school where, you know, I, I got a lot of bunch of, you know, merit and academic scholarships, those types right. of things and all kinds of fun stuff. So I, I'm not in the same position that everyone else is. And I totally realized that, but it was one of those things where I started realizing like, no, it's about the product, it's about the build, it's about the impact that really gets me excited. And, and that's where I started realizing. And then, and then it became like, no, like we want to build a big company. And it's not just to build a big company. You just think we have a unique look at the world and we have the right way to look at this particular problem. And then all of a sudden when you start to decide that, and it sometimes takes some time, like the first couple of years of the business to figure that out. And that's why I always encourage people, you know, hey, if you're, you know, work, work, learn on someone else's dime and then start working on your own thing. Work on nights, weekends, it's not going to, you know, come quick, but like start working on it because you want to be able to kind of like figure some of this stuff out, yeah, right. which is, you know, just your own introspection. And then from there, then a lot of the chips start to fall into place. So it's like, okay, well, considering, you know, YZ, we now, you know, we know we want to be a really large company. So now it's like, we will raise money. Well, when, right? Do we raise it right now? Do we get on the treadmill to go from pre-seed to C to A to B to C to D, et cetera? Or do we try and wait a little bit, try to figure some things out and then raise an A, right? Or, hey, things are going well, let's, let's try to raise a D, right? And, and so it's like one of those things that, or not raise any money at all, or raise from NDVC or some of these you know, tiny right. seed folks, these types of things, right? And so that's, that, that's kind of where it is. I think it really comes back to yourself. And I think it comes back to your own DNA. Um, if your DNA is not like building a big sales team and you don't want to change your DNA, that's fine, but there's going to be trade-offs, Right. And that's totally okay, but you have to be comfortable with that. And I think the problem that I find with a lot of entrepreneurs is they're not comfortable with their, what their DNA is, where they think they can keep their DNA and not have the trade-offs of their DNA. And I think that's one of those things that you know, self-reflection and, and just understanding who you are just gets us uh, so much more power when we're trying to put things together. That is huge, right? It's, um, you know, it's, I think about, about that too. I think about, you know, tools. I don't know if you've read the... the I think it was written in 1986 is called E-Myth and it goes into, you know, different types of, of types of people and companies. It goes into, you know, who's an entrepreneur, someone who loves business for business's sake, the producer artist, someone who is all about the product and about the quality of that product and about perfecting it. And then about the manager leader, someone who's essentially the integrator of the vision into the business. And when you talk to people about that, most people have to kind of sit back and go, wait, which of those profiles am I? And in many cases, it influences, Patrick, who, who you are when you start a company, when you're best brought in and who your best partners are. So was, you talk about the fact that you started out kind of saying, I want to make money. And then it became about the product and the customer. And, and you fall in love with that. And then you, got, then you said, okay, look, I'm going to be okay with this. Was there a point at which you said, look, I'm, I mean, I heard you on a, a podcast and you said, look, I, I'm going I'm to paraphrase, we're going to grow slower than we would if we had, you know, $100 million in capital. So it sounds like you've taken on acceptance of what those trade-offs are. Have you taken on that they're trade-offs or have you just delayed that to a point at which you feel comfortable that you can protect your company and your customers? The way we think about things, especially is like, we started thinking about, hey, are we being held back by money? 
And the answer was no. We're being held back by time, right? We weren't being held back by cash. We were being held back by like, there's these existential problems that we still need to figure out. Now, it's one of those things where, you know, we're not being held back by money, but it's not because of the existential questions anymore. It's more about, you know, some of these like bigger problems we're trying to figure out the operations problem. Like we grew from 40 to 80 people last year. Like these are, these are like bigger problems, right? Where we don't have necessarily have the right foundation. But there is going to be a point where we're being held back by the lack of cash. And it's not going to be because we don't know, you know, where we'd spend the money. It's going to be because, hey, like we understand this flywheel, we understand this predictability, and now let's go, right? And so I think that's, that's kind of how we think about it is like, you know, we, we want to do whatever is fiduciary, fiduciarily responsible for the growth that we expect and the growth that we want, which is we are trying to, you know, like the, the next big milestone is going to take a little bit to get there is, you know, a hundred million dollars in revenue. And so that's the big thing, you know, that we kind of think about, which is, you know, we're, we're okay making, you know, those trade-offs and understanding them. And I think we, I think we still realize that, you know, we, we have some of those trade-offs right now that we're okay growing a bit slower, but I think it's, it's, it's more so from a, you know, we're trying to figure out some of these, these other problems versus like, Hey, we know exactly where we'd throw this cash. Got it. Yeah, you and I could talk about this because it, it it feels like I acquire companies and one of the things I notice is that there is an exhaustion point that a lot of the founders get to where they've been running a, a bootstrap business and they either don't know how to raise capital or their business isn't appropriate for capital. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying and people who are listening is it, it's good to kind of identify when that point is before you get there. There's a lot of companies out there, Patrick, that are, you know, doing four or five, six million in revenue are bootstrapped and will probably without resources and professional management never grow beyond that. And they, they keep trying. Mm. And so through that trying, there's a lot of, you know, experimentation, pivots and burnout. And so I, I think what you've said is spot on is have your North Star, know yourself, accept the trade-offs. And the only addition I think about here is, is setting that point at which you say, this is this is this is the point at which I know emotionally and economically that we need to we need to bring in those resources and bring in those partnerships that will actually help us get to where we want to go. Because you know, not knowing that in advance, I think could be um, could be kind of uh, dangerous for for a lot of the people who are listening. I, I have a couple more questions <laughs> and thank you for talking to me so late in your day. So just kind of some basics. So tell me about ProfitWell. So when were you founded? How many employees? What's the revenue? And who's your hero customer? So we're at the uh, 2012. Uh, we, we were founded. We're about 80 folks. I think our deal customer, we sell the subscription businesses. So subscription um, SaaS is an obvious one, subscription e-commerce, subscription media. There's a whole host of other other folks who are out there. Um, that's kind of our, our base that we sell into. And then um, of those companies that we sell into, um, for it, it kind of ranges from product to product. But I would say it's you know, typically companies that are doing $10 million or more in revenue. Um, and, and some of our products at that, that low end is you know, $75 million or more in revenue. But yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially more established companies, not just you know, startups. Um, although we have plenty of startups who use our free product. And I think I've heard you mention that revenue is in the, the 10 to $15 million range. We stopped being public about that. But yeah, <laughs> that, that is not a, that's not a bad, uh, let's just say that it's not, a, it's not too far off, nor a bad statement. So I'll just put it that way. Okay. I, I, I respect that. I, 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 was in a, I was listening to one of your podcasts and I was like, wow, he's kind of sharing a lot. So 
good on you. Uh, good on you. So last question is, if you were going to write a book today, a business memoir, and dedicate it to someone, to whom would you dedicate it and why? Holy cow. That is a hard question. I think honestly, and I know it sounds cheesy, so like I don't know if people are going to believe me, but it's genuinely the first thing that came came into my head, which was I think ultimately it's it's yeah, the team that I've worked with, um, and ultimately the team that I work with. I think it's you know these are the folks who, like I said, like I'm I'm a steward into the company, and and these are the folks that are like pushing things forward, and we're not going to get there without contributions by every single person. And yeah, it might be you know the public face, but you know there's <laughs> the only reason I'm able to be a public face is because people are doing a lot of stuff on the back end to kind of keep us moving. Patrick, I um I got to tell you, you guys have built something that really simplifies so many challenges in running a business. And you've also, in my mind, uncovered, and, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, I'm sure you do. What you point out is something that a lot of really smart people have been saying for years, which is if the cost of acquisition is going up and the, co- and the churn is going up and the cost of retention is going up while you're acquiring customers, something about this business is fundamentally wrong. And, you know, I've read everything that you've produced from Price Intelligently and underneath all of it, you're talking about leadership, North Star, who's your ideal customer, run a healthy company. I mean, everything that you've done is, the, is underneath and is the fabric of what is in the market from your business. And I, I couldn't agree more, which is I, what I feel you saying to the market is build healthy companies. And these are the ways in which you get signals that the company is or isn't. And so I, I honor you in doing that for people and for starting so humbly in this business. And so thank you for being here. <laughs> and um, thank you for what you guys do in, every day in and out. And I just appreciate you and appreciate the company and appreciate the products. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. That was very kind of you. I think it's, you're so engrossed in all the problems in the day-to-day. So it's just, it's just nice to hear that. So thank you. Do you celebrate? Uh, <laughs> That's funny. I'm I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon, so not not nearly enough. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to get better at that and, and realizing the the small and medium wins. I'm more of a big win big win little loss guy, which is not necessarily a great combination. You're doing great, brother. And if you ever want to want to celebrate, uh, please come to San Francisco or to Tahoe, and uh, I, I will uh, either you know we could go jump in the lake, or I uh, think you're married now, so uh, she should come with you, <laughs> right? Celebrate some big wins. 